Here comes the big one, folks. The big question. Why would a good and loving God allow suffering in the world? We will probe this age-old question next with Dr. Matt Jordan. Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. Dr. Matt, welcome back. Well, thanks, Tommy. So glad to be here. And, yes. and you can call me Mr. Matt. That's fine. I'll just call you Mr. <laughs> Listen here, Mr. This is our third. This is our third out of three in a yeah. series of discussions we've had. And this is all part of our larger January, February theme of you can't love what you don't know. Mm. And every new thing we learn about God is another reason to love God. And today we are asking the big question. One of the biggest questions, one of the biggest problems all right. It's been around forever. Humans have always been asking it. Some folks call it the greatest objection to belief in God. And what is it, doctor? <laughs> that is what philosophers have usually called the problem of evil, though I, I think it's probably better. It's a little bit clearer to call it the problem of suffering. You know, how, how could a reasonable person believe that the universe is governed by a good and loving God when you look around and you see how much apparently pointless, needless, unjustified suffering there is in the world? Because, you know, as, as theists, not just for Christians, but for any theist, anyone who believes in God, anyone who believes that God is good, who believes that God is all-powerful, and who believes that God is all-knowing, um, it's a real intellectual challenge. Because for any bad thing you can think of, any, any instance of suffering that comes to mind, the reality is that God knows about it, mm -hmm. and God is powerful enough to stop it. Hmm. And so if God is loving, the thinking goes, why doesn't he? And so the, the core of this problem is to, the way I would put it if I was an atheist would be to say, it's not reasonable to believe in God in light of the sheer amount of evil and suffering that we see in the world. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that is powerful. And Matt and I both recognize that this can be a tough thing to even talk about. Yeah. Because we can bring to mind the tragedies we've experienced or have been close to in our own lives. So one thing, first off, uh, I want to make clear is that we recognize, and you should also recognize, that humans obviously have both heads and hearts. And when we talk about this problem of evil, the problem of suffering, it, it can be both a head problem and a heart problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times when people are asking this question, how could a good and loving God allow suffering in the world? They're asking it from their heart, from an yeah, emotional yeah. place, from a place of pain. Yeah. And... For us, who want to jump in with a head answer, it's just on a different plane. Yeah, that, that's like, a great way to put it. If they're asking from the heart, we want to speak to the heart. Right. If they're asking from the heart and we only speak to the head, we're going to sound callous. We're going to sound like we're not compassionate. And right. it's, it's, we're not going to make any headway. Right. I, I think that's so crucial, right, to acknowledge the way you were there, Tommy, that, that they're both legitimate questions, right? I mean, it, it's it's not like there's something wrong with the person who has that, that heart issue who says, I, God, I don't understand how you could allow this to happen to me or, you know, this particular horrible thing. I, I, I don't know what to do with it. That's a, a legitimate 
response. I mean, you, you don't have to read very far in the Psalms, for example, to see that that's, <laughs> um, there's certainly plenty of biblical examples of great heroes of the faith thinking in those kinds of terms. Um, but it's not the kind of question that, that philosophy per se is designed to answer. And that's the kind of stuff that we don't talk about here is for the, for the skeptic, for the person who says, I think it's unreasonable for you to believe in God. That's the sort of stuff that we want to talk about here. Yeah. And that's your expertise. And that's what uh, myself and you, our listeners, can really learn from you about. But we didn't want to gloss over that first part, that we understand there's a lot of heart pain out there. Absolutely. And this episode isn't going to be some consoling thing if you're currently in mourning. Right. This is not the one to send to a friend who just lost a loved one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did... Uh, record an episode of our podcast earlier. It's called Your Sorrowful Companion, and it's episode number 88. And that is about this loving God who doesn't just drop down some head answer Mm -hmm. from heaven, but instead comes down and suffers along with. And this is incarnational Christianity. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can't really give, you know, so, so we're going to try to talk in, in what you might call a purely philosophical way, where we're not not in any deep way helping ourselves to the, the richness of our Catholic faith. Um, but I don't think there's a really good answer to the problem of evil that doesn't ultimately point to Jesus, right? Yeah. Like Jesus is God's ultimate response, that God himself takes on a human form becomes a man and suffers and dies on our behalf. Like that's the image there, the, everything that that says about the very heart of God, I think is, is central to a, a full understanding. And, and, you know, Tommy, if I could throw one other thing in here that, that strikes me, I mean, maybe we, we don't want to be too firm in drawing a bright line between the head answer and the heart answer. I, I think there are some people, and, and to some degree, I, I think I'm in this camp where even if the philosophical stuff isn't the first thing you need when when you're in a place of heartache uh, and loss and, and despair, um, it can, for some people, it can help. You know, there's this certainly great figure in the, the relatively early church, Boethius, a uh, philosopher and theologian. You found a way to bring him up. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> who was, uh, he wrote this, this great work called The Consolation of Philosophy. And he was, as I remember the story, he was like literally on his way to being martyred for the faith and started asking himself these questions about like, how could this be? And if God is good, how, and, and he wrote this great philosophical reflection. And for him, that was a crucial part of helping him to face his own martyrdom with, uh, with courage and confidence in God. So I don't know, I, I, as much as I think it's important to recognize that philosophy is not designed to speak to the depths of our heart in that sort of way, um, we're also integrated beings as humans, right? And, and, and something can maybe speak to our heart and our head at the same time. So, And I think where this episode is going to bear fruit is this can give us, it can, it can sort of arm us ahead of time. Like if we're not yeah. going through some painful right, morning right. in our heart right now, but we firm up some of this stuff in our head later when that suffering does come, right? because it's bound to for all of us at some point, then this will be something we can rely back on. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. We have as many questions and doubts. We mm-hmm. can say, okay. Yeah, you I, think I, I, I work through that. And, yeah. you know, if, if I was, if I could believe in God when other people were suffering, maybe I can believe in God when I am too. Right. That's beautiful. I think it just came Say up with again. it right now. I like that. <laughs> if I can believe in God when other people are suffering, maybe I can believe in God when I am too. 
Love it. All right. Can, last we, get, can we get that on t-shirts? <laughs> Like, I think we might have a business opportunity coming up here. Twenty-five percent. The uh, yeah, the last thing I'll say before we jump into some of the logic and the reason behind here is just this beautiful line from John Paul II. He says, and this goes back to what we were talking about before about how Christ answers. He says, Christ does not answer directly, and does not answer in the abstract this human questioning about the meaning of suffering. Hmm. Man hears Christ's saving answer as he himself gradually becomes a sharer in the sufferings of Christ. I mean, that's sort of, that's a mystical two sentences and a lot of mystery there. But this whole, the first couple minutes we've been doing here is trying to (laughs) reverence the mystery and how this is a sacred and really painful thing for some people. But thanks be to 2,000 years of Catholic tradition, and thanks be to many more thousands of years before that of philosophers, we do have some answers. So we're going to get into some of those answers right now. How could a good and loving God allow suffering in the world? Where All do we right. start? Boy, so we just want to dive into this, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking like 10 yeah, minutes. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but you got to bear in mind, I have a PhD in philosophy. For me, like it, it takes 10 minutes just to like say what my name is. <laughs> so... Okay, I think that it's important to frame the question in the right way. I don't think, for some of the same kinds of reasons we were just alluding to, I don't think that it's helpful to, to focus on particular horrible things that happen mm-hmm. um, and start speculating on, oh, well, maybe God let this happen for this reason or for that reason or for this this one. Um, I think it's better to take a really wide-angle lens and say, look at this world we live in, full of, again, apparently pointless, needless suffering. And the question is, if you if you can imagine being in the in the place of God, um, and of course I, I don't want to sound irreverent at all when I, I say that, but if if you're if you're responsible to create a universe, right, and you're a good being, why would you create a universe that has any suffering at all in it? Um, why, why of all the infinitely many possibilities in front of you, why this one? And why not some other one that doesn't have all of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the main answer that philosophers have, have given to this is to say, well, look, a good being, a good person, um, if we're sticking on the merely human level, doesn't necessarily eliminate all of the suffering that they could prevent right? Anyone who's a parent knows what this is like. There might be times when you allow one of your children to suffer. Like, for example, you you take a kid to the dentist and, and they don't want to go to the dentist and they don't like it. And um, it, it, you know, causes some suffering in their lives. Or, or maybe you, you discipline a child and that's intentionally inflicting some kind of suffering on them. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that if you say you're a good parent? Well, because you're a good parent, you realize that there's a greater good that that suffering makes possible, right? And so it's it's way too hasty if the skeptic says that a, a loving God would never allow suffering in the world because the what we all know is true is that loving persons or, or, or a loving God could allow suffering if there's a greater good that it brings about, so that's the first step is to, is to recognize that sort of logical distinction. And then you ask, well, what are the kinds of things that are possible in this world that, that make suffering happen? And the most common answer, and I think it's a good one, I don't think it's a complete answer, but is human freedom, 
right? Um, if God's going to create a world, so, so let's put it this way. <laughs> Suppose that you're trying to decide what kind of universe to create. Mm-hmm. Um, one option is you could create nothing at all. Another option is you could create a physical universe, but one that has no life in it. So imagine a physical world where, you know, there's there's stars and planets and stuff like that, but it's just all rock and, and you know, and fire. And that's it. And rock and stars are good. Right. But is there something better than right, rock and Right. Exactly. And so you might say, oh, you know, be even better than that would be if we had this physical world, but we introduced some living things in it, right? Things that's, that increased the diversity and beauty of this creation, right? Mm-hmm. And that'd be pretty, that'd be even better than the, the universe that just has yeah. the physical stuff. Butterflies um, are cool. Yeah. Butterflies are great, right? <laughs> Flowers are great. All, all these things are, are worth having in the universe that you're creating. But there's something even better than that. And that's genuinely loving relationships, and it is creatures that um, can take actions for which they are morally responsible, creatures, in other words, who are free to choose one action rather than another. So you might say, well, I, I'd like to create a universe that has free creatures in it. I think that's that would be a really wonderful one to make. Uh, but if they're going to be genuinely free then their choices have to have consequences. Um, If they're not merely going to be robots or if their freedom isn't going to be simply some kind of of cosmic joke. Uh, And so that immediately now introduces one major possible source of suffering is that when free creatures use their freedom in ways that hurt other people. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge one. Another one. Wait, 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 what's... I thought you were going to ask. Were you about to go to soul making? I was going to go to soul making. Okay. Well, first, we we didn't say the word love, though. Hmm. I I think I said it in passing. Oh, you did? Okay. Sorry. But but that's absolutely right. Is, you know, (laughs) there's a big difference. There's a lot of, like, stories out there of witches and, and magicians and others who can, you know, make the person you desire fall in love with you by casting a spell or you give them this secret potion potion, or whatever, right? And it doesn't take any reflection at all (laughs) to perceive the difference between the one you love falling in love with you, right? Because they (laughs) fall in love with you Mm -hmm. versus the one who is compelled or constrained to do it via external forces outside their control, right? Um, or, or, or someone who built an android that couldn't do anything other than act in a loving way <laughs> toward another person. Like yeah. that's, that's not love. It, it seems like built into our very idea of the deepest sort of human love is some real measure of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Like when a guy gets down on one knee and says, <laughs> will you marry me? Rather yeah. than in eight months, you will marry me. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So free will allows love. And a world with love, that's a lot better than a world without love. Exactly. Yeah. But stuff that comes along with that. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go to your second point there. Great. So then the second one is um, sometimes called the, the soul-making answer. S-O-U-L, soul-making uh, and this is a, a little bit more complicated, but I think it's really interesting. And I think it's very plausible as well. The idea is that there are some of the things that we recognize as being really, really important goods. Like think about compassion or courage, mm-hmm. right? Those are two of the most central virtues that we know of. Well, in a world where no one ever got hurt 
or in a world where nothing was ever actually dangerous, those virtues couldn't exist. There, there's, there is literally no such thing as compassion in a world where there's no pain. There's no such thing as courage in a world where there's no real danger, right? Mm -hmm. um, if it's reasonable for a creator to want to create a world that has compassion and courage in it, then that world has to include pain and danger. Um, and, and you can, you know, multiply that over other kinds of examples, but that's another big one um, that yeah. helps us understand that like, again, why in the world would God make, why in the world would God make a world like this one? Right. I really love this, this point because, you know, you, you kind of got to get rid of both. Yeah. And if you're going to get rid of annoyances, then you're going to get rid of patience too. Mm. And patience is a virtue. And yep. if you want a world without hardship, well, then you're never going to have perseverance. Either. Exactly. And in this list, the good overcomes the bad, mm. you know, and comes out victorious yeah. because being patient when you're annoyed is overcoming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think if you, if you can think of the universe as in some meaningful sense, it's like a story that God is telling. Right. You could ask like if you're if you're a, a Tolkien fan, if you ever read the Lord of the Rings books or, or, or watch the movies, you know, Tolkien could have just put the hobbits in the Shire and left them there. <laughs> but there's something beautiful and wonderful about that story <laughs> that wouldn't be there if it was just hobbits in the Shire. The yeah, whole time, it'd be right? it'd be it'd be cool. It, it would be, be it nice, would be good. Right. Be pleasant. But it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. I, although. I don't know how boring it seems like be pretty well, good. Well, they, they, they did They're pretty good parties. Party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but w whether it's, um, I think whether it's boring or not is, is kind of a, a separate question. Um, the real issue is that it was certainly pleasant for them to be in the Shire and Tolkien could have written a story where they're just in the Shire the whole time. Why have all the, you know, orcs and the, and the, you know, the battle for the ring itself and, and real loss and suffering. So, well, it's a, it is a better, more beautiful story because it has those things in it. And I think that's connected here as well. Again, if, if it's appropriate, and I think it is to think of the universe as a story that God is telling, um, that there's a room for those. And I and, don't think Frodo knew he had it in him right. to be courageous mm -hmm. and to persevere and to make all those self-sacrifices. Right. And I think we do the same thing. Yeah. It's not until we're really tested sometimes that we see, wow, by the grace of God, I can get through this. Mm -hmm. Never would have thought I could get through this. Never would have said if such and such bad thing happens to me in the future, yep. <laughs> you know, we think that it'll just cripple us, but we can get through it with each yeah. other and with the Lord. Yeah. I have some more thoughts on that, but I think, I think we might come back uh, to some of that before we wrap this up. Okay. You want me to toss out another one? Now, where are we going? <laughs> I, I thought we could just move into a, the uh, Felix Culpa kind of approach. Okay. Yes. Good. Latin. So, <laughs> All right, there's there's some Latin, and it comes about once a year, and it's at the Easter Vigil, right? And it's part of this big prayer, and I don't know all the Latin, but uh, the English goes like like this: "Oh, happy fault that merited for us so great a redeemer." That sounds right to me. Ish. I haven't been Catholic as long as you, so I'm excused <laughs> for not knowing. I've only had like six Easter's in the church. But oh, no. happy fault. That's a, this that is a good one. for us, so great a redeemer. Yeah. So if we're talking about, again, reasons why, why would God make a world 
where so much suffering takes place, what good things could that make possible? Um, this is a distinctively Christian one, but it's beautiful and powerful. In addition to creating a world where there are free creatures who can engage in loving relationships, in addition to making possible virtues like compassion and courage and patience and perseverance, uh, one distinctively Christian response is to say that a world where the incarnation and uh, redemption of the world take place through Christ is so much more beautiful, so much better than any world where it doesn't, that that alone is sufficient reason for God to create a, a world where people fall into sin, a world that is broken, a world where there's enormous suffering, because none of the other, none of the possibilities that lack that, or, or maybe a better way to put it is this, Every world that gets broken and needs to be healed and redeemed by Christ is better than a, a world where everybody just has a nice time and that never happens. That's the idea, that the, that the incarnation, the central miracle of the Christian faith um, is so glorious as to sort of outweigh any other suffering and, and, and pain that's... Um, that might be incurred. It's very mysterious, but, and the logic, some, I don't know, sometimes the logic seems crazy when Jesus says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who never went astray. And it's like, wait, how, what? <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, that's awesome. It is. I mean, we recognize things like this. There's a philosopher named Richard Swinburne, um, and I'm blanking on the name of the essay where he wrote this, but it, trust me that he wrote it once upon a time, um, where he just gave this sort of simple example that illustrates the depth of some of these ideas. He says, you know, suppose that you had these, this is kind of a crazy idea. It's what philosophers call a thought experiment. It's, it's re not remotely plausible, but it's just to illustrate kind of how some of these ideas actually work. Like, suppose that... Um, uh, that God came to you and said, hey, <laughs> you're going to be reincarnated um, and, and you're going to have, you have to choose. You get one of two lives. In, in life number one, you're going to exist for 30 seconds and you're going to experience just the most intense pleasure that could possibly be imagined. Hmm. And then you're going to cease existing. Or in life number two, you're going to exist, well, we'll say it's again for 30 seconds, and you're going to experience extraordinary pain and suffering for those 30 seconds. But as a result of your pain and suffering, there will be a million people who live happy, healthy lives, right? Mm. Which one would you pick? And the idea, um, of course, is that we, we recognize something so beautiful and, and so good in, in taking on suffering in order to bring about good for others. That of course, any, I think any thoughtful, reasonable person would pick the second option. Yeah. I'm just thinking about as a dad, you're a dad, you got yeah. seven kids. And at some point, because some of them are like in their twenties or something, right? <laughs> yeah. My oldest is going to be 20 in like three weeks. Okay. So you got seven kids. Certainly. By now, some of your kids have wronged you. I don't know. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Which, in doing that, because the way this whole scheme works, in doing that, now you have an opportunity for, to forgive them. Yeah. Which is a deeper part of your heart 
your heart has expanded because it had to really dig down because you were wronged in order to forgive. But how beautiful it is that you were able to love your kid in a new way, the way of forgiveness Mm -hmm. that never would have happened if they had just been a perfect robot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really well said. That's exactly right. Or so it seems to me anyway. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Tommy, I I think that we, we've got in front of us now three, uh, three, at least possible answers to the question. Why would a loving God create a world like this one that has so much suffering in it? Right. Okay. Um, Remind us of those three in very short phrases. Absolutely. Uh, Free will. Which allows for love. Cool. Mm-hmm. Soul making. Mm, which helps us become more virtuous. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Felix culpa. That's the Latin phrase for the happy fault. Happy fault. Of which you spoke a few moments ago so eloquently. Right. <laughs> but the idea that, uh, that, that a world where God becomes incarnate in Christ and redeems the world is better than any world where he doesn't. Even a very, very pleasant one. So... But I think there's another kind of answer as well, that that we would be remiss if we didn't talk about at least a little bit. Uh, you might notice that, you know, very attentive listeners might have caught that a second ago. I said we've, we've covered three possible answers. I didn't say plausible answers, although I think they're plausible. Um, and I definitely didn't say three true answers, right? I'm not claiming to know for sure why God uh, makes the choices that God does. Uh, and that connects to this but other point that I you have a fancy degree. I, that's, you know, in spite of that, <laughs> in spite of the fanciness of that degree, I do not pretend to uh, oh. to have plumbed the depths of the mind okay, of God. So there's some humility here. Tell me well, about it. Um, well, I think it's a, it's a humility that's crucial for thinking well about this problem, which is that we just have to recognize that God's wisdom is is so much greater than ours. I mean, if theism is really true, if 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 God exists, uh, his intellect, his perspective is radically different from ours. And there's going, surely there's going to be things that happen that make no sense to us. So uh, let me see if I can motivate that idea with, with an example that one of my professors gave. And I'll, I'll give a shout out to Professor James Petrick of Ohio University, um, who is a, was one of my philosophical mentors and is a, a really terrific human being and also a Catholic himself. Um, and uh, James gives this uh, story to, to illustrate the way in which our moral perspectives can change. That is our perspective on what's good and, and, and what's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, um, and I believe still has, an older brother. So like maybe maybe five, six years older. And it's that sort of age gap where the, the younger brother really kind of worships the older one, right? So, mm-hmm. so he's like maybe 11 years old, 12 and he has a brother who's finishing up high school and, you know, the older one is just his absolute hero. And as the older brother is wrapping up high school and getting, getting ready to go to college, he says to his little brother, James, like, hey, James, this summer, before I leave for school, you and I are going to have one last adventure together. We are going to go camping for a week in the Rocky Mountains. I think that they lived in that part of the country or something. Um, and James, you know, little 11, 12-year-old James, like, oh, man. This is amazing, right? This is, I can't wait. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. We'll be catching fish. We'll have campfires. We'll be hiking in the wilderness. Maybe we'll see a bear. Like, this is the most amazing thing that could happen. Me and my brother. Yeah, exactly. And you can imagine how awesome that would be. Well, I'm sorry to say that uh, his brother got a girlfriend. And suddenly, summer before college, 
a week in the woods with his little brother wasn't as appealing as maximizing the time sitting on the front porch with his new girlfriend. Yes. And as James tells the story, from his point of view as a 12-year-old or whatever it might have been, right, he's like, this is insane. <laughs> like, who, who could possibly prefer to sit with a girl? Cooties. <laughs> over... Hiking in the wilderness. Like, this is obviously the wrong choice, right? Yeah. Well. Ten then... times out of ten. Wrong choice. <laughs> well, According then, to the 11-year-old. A few years later, right, he gets to be 14, 15, 16. So, like, he starts to mature himself. And suddenly, his perspective changes. Like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> I see. <laughs> put it simply. How, how someone might make this choice and not necessarily be irrational in doing so, right? Well, think of that as the difference between a, a 17-year-old and an 11-year-old, right, in mm -hmm. terms of maturity and perspective. I mean, that's nothing. And then you can expand it further. And for those of us who are parents, right, the difference between a 40-year-old and a 3-year-old, like, is way bigger. And there's lots of times that our 3-year-olds might not think what we're doing makes any sense at all. Like, why can't I have more candy? Or, or why yeah. why would you take me to the doctor to get a shot? Like, all, all of these yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, Because shots hurt. Yeah. Where the, but the parent knows what's good and allows these things to happen. Or, or maybe the parents appreciate things like, I don't know, uh, wine or poetry or art or something where, like, the, the, the toddler literally can't even grasp them. Right? Hmm. Like, like, try, you know, try to get your... <laughs> your three-year-old to you know, sit down and just contemplate a, a Caravaggio painting at the Cleveland <laughs> Museum of Art. And like, it's just not going to happen. But you reach a certain point of maturity and you might say, oh my, wow, this is powerful. There's something beautiful and good here. Well, the, the gap intellectually between us and God is, uh, it may be literally true to say it's infin infinitely greater than the gap between a 40-year-old and a three-year-old. Like God's perspective, God's intellect are so many orders of magnitude superior to our own that we ought to expect that the world is going, a world created by such a being is going to have things in it that we don't understand. And I think that's a, a reasonable and important thing for us to bear in mind. Yeah, yeah, that dose of hum humility, you know, it's uh, thinking that we could create a better universe. Yeah. I mean, how many days out of seven in a week do I have my own life in order? <laughs> and I think I can make a whole better universe. Yeah. Well, or rather, I mean, here's let me throw out one other thing that, that might be worth chewing on. The, the force of this argument is strongest when the atheist or the skeptic says, well, look, I'm not saying that God has to eliminate all of the suffering. I'm just saying that if God is loving... He wouldn't allow this much suffering. Right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where it's the most powerful version. But I think that that also reveals just how limited our understanding is. Because our judgments of what's too much suffering or how much is compatible with a loving God are so determined by our own experience. <laughs> yeah, right? completely like, arbitrary or subjective. I mean, just... Seriously. Like, like here, here's an example. Um, if you think about the question, what counts as a big house? Well, 
your answer to that question is going to hinge on what country you live in and what year you were born in. Yeah. You know, I, I, my wife and I, for years, when I was in grad school, we rented a house that was built in, I think, 1917. Um, and it was a perfectly normal house by the standards of that time. And it was shocking to us how, you know, we had we had one and a half baths for our family. And the half bath had been an addition in, you know, the 1980s. Um, the closets were microscopic compared to, <laughs> to closets and houses built in the 21st century, right? And you get a similar kind of thing when you look at, at suffering. Uh, here's a, a, one more quick anecdote, and I, I promise I won't spend all our time, Tommy, just telling stories, but I think this one is, is, is useful for we thinking like this through. So at the same time I was living in the house with the tiny closets, uh, there was a story in the uh, Columbus Dispatch. I did my PhD at Ohio State, and so we were living in Columbus. Um, and there had been a, a bed bug outbreak in some hotel and the in, or hotels in the Columbus area. And there was all this, people were worried that this was going to be like a national thing. And it was, and I remember reading this and I was like, so appalled. And so like, like, I remember thinking things like what the, it is the 21st century. Like we are, be, this is America. Like how, <laughs> how can there be bed bugs? That's just horrible. And, and awful. a man on the moon 40 yeah. years ago. Exactly. We haven't Ex solved yes. the bed bug thing. Exactly. There can't be bed bugs, right? This is revolting. And the idea of little bugs climbing on me while I'm sleeping and biting me. And like, this is unacceptable, completely <laughs> unacceptable. And <laughs> what struck me, I remember I was walking down main street in, in Bexley, Ohio. And, th and this just kind of hit me that, Oh, wait a minute. Imagine a world in the distant future. Cause it, cause it struck me that years ago people used to have bed bugs, right? That's why it's, that's why I was thinking to myself, it's the 21st century. Cause in the 19th century, in the 18th century, everybody had bug, bed bugs, right? Good night, sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Mm -hmm. Why was that a little rhyme? Because you probably had bed bugs, <laughs> right? Like that was just a thing and people lived with it and it was fine. Um, nobody was, you know, torn up about it the way that I was in danger of being torn <laughs> up about it. Um, and then I imagined a world like 200 years in the future where mosquitoes have been eradicated and imagine somebody saying like, oh, back in like 2020, they used to have these bugs that would fly around like this horrible buzzing sound in your ear. And then they had these long needle-like noses and they would plunge these needles into people's arms and suck their blood. And then they would fly off and the people would have these huge welts and they would itch <laughs> and people just dealt with it. Right. And I can imagine somebody in that future world reacting to mosquitoes the same way that I was reacting to the bed bugs. And that's not to say that I like bed bugs or that I like mosquitoes, but it is to say that our perceptions of what's tolerable, of how much suffering is plausibly allowable by a good and loving God, I think we have good grounds for being very skeptical about our own ability to make confident claims about how much. God would allow, right? And to make it a little more concrete, if we're talking about this problem of suffering, if the question in front of us is, does the existence of suffering make it unreasonable to believe in God? And the atheist says, yeah, it's unreasonable. No loving being would create a world with this much suffering in it. Well, then the question becomes, well, how much would God allow, right? Would a good and loving God allow? If you, if you imagine world history, but just take out the Holocaust, would that be okay? Or take out the Holocaust and take yeah. out slavery in the United States. Would that then be compatible? Or like, like what exactly are you saying that God should have done instead? At what point would the amount of suffering be little enough that you would say belief in theism is now reasonable? Yeah. 
while you were you were talking about this limited knowledge that we have and recognizing that it's limited, it brought to mind something I read in a Peter Crave book once, and he his analogy is this. He said, picture two babies in the womb. They're twins, okay? They're growing up. They're like six or seven months along, and pretend that, you know, they're hanging out and they can talk to one another. Yeah, I'm with you. And so uh, with these, you know, the ones, philosophers love this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. The the one says to the other, like, uh, so um, why do you think we have feet? Like, what's the purpose of that? You know? <laughs> yeah. And the other one is just like, I have no idea. It must be a mistake. It must be some sort of mistake because we don't need it right mm-hmm. here in this world because there are no sidewalks in wombs. And the and and then they keep having this philosophical discussion and they're wondering, you know, do you think that there'll be life after birth? You know, is there another world outside of this world or is this womb all there is? And I just love yeah. that analogy. Oh, that's great. That's the, fantastic. Yeah. The feet, legs that babies have, they have no use in the womb, <laughs> but they are very useful after they're yeah. born. Yeah. And for us to realize... We're in the womb of the earth. Yeah. We're in the womb of a mortal life. And there might be things, and maybe suffering is one of those things, that is kind of mysterious here, mm-hmm. but it sure has some use in the bigger picture. Yeah. I, I mean, I would also connect that back to the earlier idea that I tossed out of, of you know, if we think of the, of the universe as a story that God is telling – awfully important to remember that we're in the middle of the story, right? I mean, one of the things that we sometimes think about, or or excuse me, one of the things that people sometimes seem to think is that this life is all there is, right? And I'm willing to grant you that the, um, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering is a massive, well, it's a big problem regardless. I mean, it's a big intellectual challenge regardless, but in particular, if you take it for granted that human existence is only our life on earth, well, that's a very different picture than if we are eternal beings, right? Than if yeah. we are creatures who live in a universe governed by a good God who does make the offer of eternal life, who does promise to heal and redeem and restore the world, right? This isn't the end of the book. We're, we're you know, we're out of the Shire, um, to take the yeah. the Lord of the Rings example, right. we're somewhere along the road. We haven't gotten back yet. We haven't, you know, fought the battle or we're, maybe we're in the middle of the battle, right? But yeah. this isn't the last chapter of the book. And that's awfully important to remember. Yeah, it's important because, yeah, it'd be like taking the last 10 chapters out of a book. Right. You know, it's like the story's not going to make sense. Because exactly. if you have those chapters available to you right, to where you can say, okay, if there is an afterlife, mm-hmm. hmm, maybe that's a place. Yeah. Where ultimate justice is done. Right. Because if there is no afterlife, the torturer and the yeah, tortured end up the same. They both end up the yeah. same. There's no ultimate justice. Yeah. But if there is an afterlife where wrongs can be righted, mm-hmm. where every well, tear is wiped everything. away. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice line. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> this came to me. Yeah. You know, while you mentioned that, that piece of the Bible, and we're talking about stories, you know. The first book of the Bible in Genesis, you remember that story of Joseph and his brothers? Yeah. And you've got the coat, and then they, throw, they you know, he's sold off into slavery, and then he becomes this advisor um, to the Pharaoh. And when it's all over, and there's that beautiful story where Joseph reveals his true identity back to his brothers, there's this line right at the end 
of the book of Genesis. Okay, Joseph says to his brothers after all this, and they feel so bad because they, <laughs> they betrayed him, they committed all this evil against him. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Mm. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful passages so in the whole Bible. It's amazing. Um, I would want to be careful in this context, though, uh, to go back to kind of where we first started and with being careful about, you know, the kinds of questions that people have and that someone might be wrestling with. Because I do think it's a mistake. And Tommy, I'm not, I'd be interested to know if, if you would agree with this or disagree or, or save save opinions for later. Um but I think it's actually a huge mistake when people say that everything happens for a reason. I am a hundred percent with you. Oh, I'm glad especially to hear when they say when that's their response to someone sharing sorrow yeah. or tragedy. Yeah. To say God has a plan or everything happens for a reason. Yeah. That's basically assuming what? That God wanted this evil thing to happen. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So that it's in that horrible thing itself is intended by God, right? Yeah. And I know that when people say things like everything happens for a reason, they they mean well. But boy, I think it's it seems to me to be among the least helpful things that a person can say. Yeah. And it's connected to why at the very beginning I said I don't think we should think in terms of why did God allow this particular thing to happen, but rather why or how could a loving God create a world where this kind of thing happens, right? Because then I think that leads, Tommy, to the, the point that you were making um, very eloquently at the at the start of this conversation about um, God coming alongside us, right? That that's that becomes the right answer at that point is to look to the suffering of Christ and it's to do what what Job's friends in the Bible initially did right um, if you know the story of Job of course he suffered enormously and his friends came by and they don't get enough credit for how well they started out because <laughs> they actually give him a code you know they get they have a bad reputation Job's friends yeah um, but they do start out the right way they just sit with him right? And, and that's I, that sort of what some people call a ministry of presence, right? Mm -hmm. Just being there with someone in their suffering is often the most powerful thing that can be offered. They don't screw up until they start telling Job why he suffered these losses, right? Um, but I, I think that's very, very important, and, it, and it's crucial to recognize when we're thinking about these things, um, uh, how dangerous that sort of response can be. Yeah, because it sort of makes it sound like God willed. He wanted yes. that bad thing to happen. That's like, well he has said. this plan, and I, he wants the bad thing to happen to you so that something good will happen later. But it's like, God doesn't yeah. will any <laughs> evil. Yeah. But when an evil happens, he is up there, and he's like, oh. Yeah. And he's like working. He's fashioning. Like, yeah. I'm going to make it possible for a greater good to come yeah. from this. All things work together for good for those that love God, right? That's and we don't, right. We're not promised that we will see that in our lives. <laughs> um, we're promised that it's true, uh, even if it's not apparent how it works out. Yeah. All right. Well, in our prep for this session, you know, we, we came all across this C.S. Lewis quote and he says things so well sometimes he says god whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our conscience but shouts 
in our pains. That is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Yeah, it's a great line. It's a great line. Um, and really what Lewis is giving us there is one more reason why a loving God might allow a world like this one with so much apparently pointless suffering, right? Which is, it's awfully hard in the in the face of suffering to say that this world is our ultimate home, that this is the place where we belong, that this is the place where we fit. It's it's the brokenness of the world that keeps us, at least hopefully, from sliding into idolatry, of, of thinking that this world is our ultimate good or that our ultimate good can be found in the merely finite. Mm -hmm. um, it, Just it, from distraction to mm -hmm. distraction to distraction, and then we die. Yeah, it pushes us to to ask the deeper questions, to think about what is going on here. And, yeah. you know, that actually, Tommy, if I can throw in one other, one other thing before we wrap up. Um, some people have suggested that, that the experience of evil is actually a big problem for atheists, too. And I think that's right, although it sounds strange. But let me see if I can make sense out of that claim, and, and then you can tell me if I, if I did a good job or if it was just utterly <laughs> uh, incoherent. <laughs> but here's the idea. When we got started, I said that uh, the, the strongest atheistic argument shouldn't be called the problem of evil. It should be called the problem of suffering. And that's because suffering is just sort of a, you know, it's a biological fact or it's a, it's a real feature of our experience. There, there's nothing um, morally laden. <laughs> there's no, there's no uh, good or bad built into the, the word suffering. But when we talk about evil, right, we're talking about something that, that ought to be avoided. Um, we're, we're talking about something that, that isn't merely descriptive, but it's mm -hmm. what philosophers call mm -hmm. normative. It speaks to the way things ought to be. Yeah. And when push comes to shove, I think that when we look at real evil in the world, I mean, I, um, uh, for instance, I remember a couple of years ago, I had the chance to take some students on a uh, civil rights trip down to Alabama. And so uh, we went to the new um, lynching memorial that's down there. And it is... I'm, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. It was one of the most powerful things I have ever seen. This memorial to men and women who had been brutally tortured and murdered um, by just this most hateful, straight up racists that, you know, the world has ever seen. It's, it is stomach churning. It is powerful. It, it's incredible. And you it was can't... shouting in your pain. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, and you can't look at the sculptures there or the monuments there and not, you know, cry out for justice and not say, you know, it's not supposed to be like this. This is wrong. It's not just bad, right? It's not just, I know that might sound like a weird distinction, but I mean, it's not merely, oh, how sad it is that these people suffered so much, right? I feel yeah. compassion and I, and I wish that they had felt pleasure instead of pain. It's no, the pain's horrific, but the injustice of it is possibly even worse. Like the, the, the dehumanizing, the, the sheer utter evil, the wrongness, it shouldn't be like this. And I would argue that in an atheistic universe, it doesn't make any sense at all to think that way. It doesn't make any sense to say that there's a way things should be and shouldn't should be. should is the word, right? Yeah, because should implies that there's like a plan, that there's a standard, that there's some kind of objective norm that we're measuring it against. And in an atheistic universe, there's anything like that. 
there's no ultimate arbiter of, of right and wrong. There's no purpose behind the universe, no reason why we were made. There's pleasant stuff happens and unpleasant stuff happens. And if you're lucky, you get more pleasant than unpleasant. But the idea that 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 shouldn't be the case or that it's unjust, I, I think it's incoherent. And I think that's a really powerful reason um, to believe that we do live in a theistic universe, even though um, and even because we recognize suffering and evil in it. Yeah, so you're saying that atheists, when they say things should be like this, should not be like that, they're they're really speaking with a conscience that God gave them that there is a such thing as good, there is a such thing as evil. Because, I mean, if the atheist is right, and we're just highly evolved animals, I mean, we don't look at the animal kingdom and say, well, yeah, (laughs) it's like, it's wrong for that squirrel to take most of the nuts. You know, (laughs) right. It's like, no, that's just like you said, it's descriptive. It's just what they're doing. And if that's all there is and there's no lawgiver, there's no moral lawgiver, then there's no moral laws. And it's just survival of the fittest and people going to kill other people. Oh, well. Yep. Yeah. In an atheistic world, there's a way things is, (laughs) but there's no way things ought to be. That Mm -hmm. just, I don't think that language makes sense if there is no God. And, and as far as more problems for, for atheists, I mean, if an atheist says, with all the suffering in the world, there can't be a God, it's like, okay, well, if you get rid of God, you haven't gotten rid of the evil or well, the suffering. That it's is like, true. now you just have evil and suffering and no chance for redemption, no <laughs> chance for the wrongs to be righted. Yeah. It's yeah. like, okay, does that really make you feel better? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it actually raises the question of why in an atheistic world, we should care about what's true, right? If, if there's no, if the universe isn't a fundamentally good place to be, oh, what's the big deal if our beliefs are wrong about it? <laughs> and the other question that we should turn, you know, turn around at least in our minds, if not with real people, but in a loving way. It's like, how could a good and loving God allow evil in the world? I mean, a, a good question is, how is there any good in the world? Yeah. It's I, I, like the problem of goodness. There's like, a, how do you explain goodness in the world yeah. without God? Especially real, like, deep and vibrant good things. I mean, you think about, um, I'll, I'll put this really quickly, but... You know, in an atheistic universe, I think we've got to believe that the Darwinian story is the complete story of how we got here, right? There, there is no other game in town. There's no, you know, divine assistance for the evolutionary process. It's just whatever helped our ancestors survive. And isn't it striking how the very best things in human life, things like, you know, humor and committed romantic love and spirituality and a sense of awe and yeah, wonder beauty. and beauty. Yes, those Truth. things are not super handy when it comes to the Darwinian struggle for survival, right? Those are not the kinds of things that are going to help yeah. you in, you know, help, help proto-hominids um, stay alive and pass on their genes. And yet those are the very things that make human life worth living. Right? And that make us human. Exactly. Like, exactly. because if, if we just want to act like animals who don't have souls that are going to live on, then we're just going to sit at home and be like, how can I be the best barbarian? How can I steal the most food? <laughs> yeah. Right? And yeah. that's when we, you know, we even yeah. go there in our language when we say this person's acting like an animal. Yeah. No, that's that really is a problem of good for the atheist. Why is it that the best things, the most human things in life seem to make the least amount of sense in an atheistic universe? Well, we have... Talked about a lot. We a have a lot of deep Man. stuff. We talked about sort of the three 
three or four answers to how could a good and loving God allow suffering mm-hmm. in the world. We had uh, free will, you mm-hmm. know, because yep. if you don't have a world with free will, then you won't have a world with love and freedom is, is good. Yep. We talked about soul making, about how it improves us as beings. Yep. And how you need a world with pain, with danger, to have a world that has compassion and courage. You need a, a world with inconveniences and annoyances in order to have a world with patience in it. That's the, that's the idea there. Yeah. And in a world without loss, we wouldn't have any gratitude. Hmm. We also talked about, oh, happy fault and about how only in a fallen world can there be an incarnation leading to an atonement. We also talked about how God wakes us up sometimes in our pains and in our sufferings. That was that C.S. Lewis quote, right? Yeah. And... Talk about limitations on our knowledge. That yeah, was the other big thing. Like we have, knowledge. we have good reason to think that we wouldn't understand everything that happens in a theistic universe. And we talked about how when we're trying to love people in our lives, answer their questions, but also respond to their pain with mm. love and consolation, and don't just try and throw some catechism quotes <laughs> at them, or That's good. or yeah. uh, or philosophy, but accompany them and love them. Um, and when the time is right, also bring up some of these some of these answers to the greatest question that we struggle with oftentimes. And what else do we talk about? Our yeah, episode eighty eight of this podcast, mm-hmm. your sorrowful companion, that gets more into how Jesus accompanies us in our sorrow. So check that out if you'd like. But we wanted and, to and, end. Well, oh, go ahead. But last but not least, that big thing we just just unpacked a minute ago, right? That. The very experience we have of evil is itself reason to believe that we live in a morally charged universe. We live yeah. in a universe that's, that must have uh, a God behind it. Yeah. The fact we want justice right. is very telling. Yes. So we're going to end with just two prayers. And they're prayers that sort of cry out to God during times of suffering. So we're going to do Psalm 13 and then another prayer that I found that I really liked. So... Dr. Jordan, would you do Psalm 13 if you would sort of be proclaim that? And then and then I'll do this other prayer. But we'll start in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in thy steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This prayer is called Learning Christ. Teach me, my Lord, to be sweet and gentle in all the events of life, in disappointments, in the thoughtlessness of others, in the insincerity of those I trusted, in the unfaithfulness of those on whom I relied. Let me put myself aside to think of the happiness of others, to hide my little pains and heartaches so that I may be the only one to suffer from them. Teach me to profit 
by the suffering that comes across my path. Let me so use it that it may mellow me, not harden or embitter me, that it may make me patient, not irritable, that it may make me broad in my forgiveness, not narrow, haughty, and overbearing. May no one be less good for having come within my influence, no one less pure, less true, less kind, less noble for having been a fellow traveler in our journey towards eternal life. As I go my rounds from one distraction to another, let me whisper from time to time a word of love to thee. May my life be lived in the supernatural, full of power for good and strong in its purpose of sanctity. Lord, we just pray for all our listeners right now who are going through a time of sorrow, of suffering, of pain, of trial, especially for those situations that seem like they're going to last forever. We just pray for your grace, your consolation, your presence. Come down, Lord. You are so good at it. It's your job. It's who you are. You come down and you suffer alongside, suffer along with, and you transform things. So that's what we pray for, for our listeners. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being, (laughs) just being, being who you are. The God who is so good, who is so loving, who is just so knowledgeable of everything we are and everything we need. And we look forward and hope spending eternity with you where all the wrongs are righted and all the tears are wiped away and we just sing and laugh and love amen amen the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit Amen. amen Dr. Matt Jordan, thank you so much for coming these three times, talking through these deep topics. And Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Us. Love it. All right. Well, God bless you and your family. And with your spirit. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> See ya. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.